Section 7 The Private Memoirs and Confessions of a Justified Sinner Written by Himself by James Hogg This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. One of them found out another engagement, however. The instant after this last was determined on. Young Ringham went off the hill that morning and home to his upright guardian again without washing the blood from his face and neck. And there he told a most woeful story indeed, how he had gone out to take a morning's walk on the hill, where he had encountered with his reprobate brother among the mist, who had knocked him down and very near murdered him, threatening dreadfully and with horrid oaths to throw him from the top of the cliff. The wrath of the great divine was kindled beyond measure. He cursed the aggressor in the name of the Most High, and bound himself, by an oath, to cause that wicked one's transgressions return upon his own head sevenfold. But, before he engaged further in the business of vengeance, he kneeled with his adopted son, and committed the whole cause unto the Lord, whom he addressed as one coming breathing burning coals of juniper and casting his lightnings before him, to destroy and root out all who had moved hand or tongue against the children of the promise. Thus did he arise confirmed, and go forth to certain conquest. We cannot enter into the detail of the events that now occurred without forestalling a part of the narrative of one who knew all the circumstances was deeply interested in them, and whose relation is of a higher value than anything that can be retailed out of the stores of tradition and old registers. But his narrative, being different from these, it was judged expedient to give the account as thus publicly handed down to us. Suffice it that, before evening, George was apprehended and lodged in jail on a criminal charge of an assault and battery, to the shedding of blood, with the intent of committing fratricide. Then was the old laird in great consternation, and blamed himself for treating the thing so lightly, which seemed to have been gone about from the beginning so systematically, and with an intent which the villains were now going to realize, namely, to get the young laird disposed of, and then his brother, in spite of the old gentleman's teeth, would be laird himself. Old Dahl now set his whole interest to work among the noblemen and lawyers of his party. His son's case looked exceedingly ill, owing to the former assault before witnesses, and the unbecoming expressions made use of by him on that occasion, as well as from the present assault, which George did not deny, and for which no moving cause or motive could be made to appear. On his first declaration before the sheriff, matters looked no better, but then the sheriff was a Whig. It is well known how differently the people of the present day in Scotland 
view the cases of their own party men and those of opposite political principles. But this day is nothing to that in such matters, although, God knows, there are still sometimes bare-faced enough. It appeared, from all the witnesses in the first case, that the complainant was the first aggressor, that he refused to stand out of the way, though apprised of his danger, and when his brother came against him inadvertently, he had aimed a blow at him with his foot, which, if it had taken effect, would have killed him. But as to the story of the apparition in fair daylight, the flying from the face of it, the running foul of his brother pursuing him, and knocking him down, why, the judge smiled at the relation, and saying, It was a very extraordinary story. He remanded George to prison, leaving the matter to the high court of justiciary. When the case came before the court, matters took a different turn. The constant and sullen attendance of the one brother upon the other excited suspicions, and these were in some manner confirmed when the guards at Queensbury House deported that the prisoner went by them on his way to the hill that morning about twenty minutes before the complainant, and when the latter passed, he asked if such a young man had passed before him, describing the prisoner's appearance to them, and that, on being answered in the affirmative, he mended his pace and fell a-running. The Lord Justice, on hearing this, asked the prisoner if he had any suspicions that his brother had a design on his life. He answered that all along, from the time of their first unfortunate meeting, his brother had dogged his steps so constantly and so unaccountably that he was convinced it was with some intent out of the ordinary course of events, and that if, as his lordship supposed, it was indeed his shadow that he had seen approaching him through the mist, then, from the cowering and cautious manner that it advanced, there was no little doubt that his brother's design had been to push him headlong from the cliff that morning. A conversation then took place between the judge and the Lord Advocate, and, in the meantime, a bustle was seen in the hall, on which the doors were ordered to be guarded, and behold, the precious Mr. R. Ringham was taken into custody, trying to make his escape out of court. Finally, it turned out that George was honorably acquitted, and young Ringham bound over to keep the peace, with heavy penalties and securities. That was a day of high exultation to George and his youthful associates, all of whom abhorred Ringham, and the evening being spent in great glee it was agreed between Mr. Adam Gordon and George that their visit to the Highlands, though thus long delayed, was not to be abandoned. And though they had, through the machinations of an incendiary, lost the season of delight, they would still find plenty of sport in deer shooting. Accordingly, the day was set a second time for their departure, and on the day preceding that, 
All the party were invited by George to dine with him once more at the sign of the Black Bull of Norway. Everyone promised to attend, anticipating nothing but festivity and joy. Alas, what short-sighted improvident creatures we are! All of us, and how often does the evening cup of joy lead to sorrow in the morning? The day arrived, the party of young noblemen and gentlemen met, and were as happy and jovial as men could be. George was never seen so brilliant, or so full of spirits, and exulting to see so many gallant young chiefs and gentlemen about him, who all gloried in the same principles of loyalty. Perhaps this word should have been written, disloyalty. He made speeches, gave toasts, and sung songs, all leaning slyly to the same side until a very late hour. By that time he had pushed the bottle so long and so freely that its fumes had taken possession of every brain to such a degree that they held Dame Reason rather at the staff's end, overbearing all her counsels and expostulations and it was imprudently proposed by a wild, inebriated spark, and carried by a majority of voices, that the whole party should adjourn to a bagnio for the remainder of the night. They did so, and it appears from what follows that the house to which they retired must have been somewhere on the opposite side of the street to the Black Bull Inn, a little farther to the eastward. They had not been an hour in that house till some altercation chanced to arise between George Calwain and a Mr. Drummond, the younger son of a nobleman of distinction. It was perfectly casual, and no one thenceforward, to this day, could ever tell what it was about. If it was not about the misunderstanding of some word or term that the one had uttered. However, it was. Some high words passed between them. These were followed by threats, and in less than two minutes from the commencement of the quarrel, Drummond left the house in apparent displeasure, hinting to the other that they too should settle that in a more convenient place. The company looked at one another, for all was over before any of them knew such a thing was begun. What the devil is the matter? cried one. What ails Drummond? cried another. Who has he quarreled with? asked a third. Don't know. Can't tell on my life. He has quarreled with his wine, I suppose, and is going to send it a challenge. Such were the questions, and such the answers that passed in the jovial party, and the matter was no more thought of. But in the course of a very short space, about the length which the ideas of the company were the next day at great variance, a sharp rap came to the door. It was opened by a female, but there, being a chain inside, she only saw one side of the person at the door. He appeared to be a young gentleman, in appearance like him who had lately left the house and asked in a low whispering voice if young Doll Castle was still in the house. The woman did not know. If he is, added he, 
Pray tell him to speak with me for a few minutes. The woman delivered the message before all the party, among whom there were then sundry courteous ladies of noble distinction, and George, on receiving it, instantly rose from the side of one of them and said, In the hearing of them all, I will bet a hundred marks that it is Drummond. Don't go to quarrel with him, George, said one. Bring him in with you, said another. George stepped out. The door was again bolted, the chain drawn across, and the inadvertent party left within thought no more of the circumstance till the morning, that the report had spread over the city that a young gentleman had been slain, on a little washing green at the side of the north lock, and at the very bottom of the close where this thoughtless party had been assembled. Several of them, on first hearing the report, basted to the dead room in the guardhouse, where the corpse had been deposited, and soon discovered the body to be that of their friend and late entertainer, George Cowain. Great were the consternation and grief of all concerned, and in particular of his old father and Miss Logan, for George had always been the sole hope and darling of both and the news of the event paralyzed them so as to render them incapable of all thought or exertion. The spirit of the old laird was broken by the blow, and he descended at once from a jolly, good-natured and active man to a mere dreveler, weeping over the body of his son, kissing his wound, his lips, and his cold brow alternately, denouncing vengeance on his murderers and lamenting that he himself had not met the cruel doom, so that the hope of his race might have been preserved. In short, finding that all further motive of action and object of concern or of love, here below, were forever removed from him. He abandoned himself to despair, and threatened to go down to the grave with his son. But, although he made no attempt to discover the murderers. The arm of justice was not idle, and it being evident to all that the crime must infallibly be brought home to young Drummond, some of his friends sought him out and compelled him, sorely against his will, to retire into concealment till the issue of the proof that should be led was made known. At the same time, he denied all knowledge of the incident with a resolution that astonished his intimate friends and relations, who to a man suspected him guilty. His father was not in Scotland, for I think it was said to me that this young man was second son to a John, Duke of Melfort, who lived abroad with the royal family of the Stuarts. But this young gentleman lived with the relations of his mother one of whom, an uncle, was a lord of session. These, having thoroughly effected his concealment, went away and listened to the evidence, and the examination of every new witness convinced them that their noble young relative was the slayer of his friend. All the young gentlemen of the party were examined, save Drummond, who, when sent for, could not be found which circumstance sorely confirmed the suspicions against him in the minds of judges and jurors, friends and enemies. 
and there is little doubt that the care of his relations in concealing him injured his character and his cause. The young gentleman of whom the party was composed varied considerably with respect to the quarrel between him and the deceased. Some of them had neither heard nor noted it. Others had, but not one of them could tell how it began. Some of them had heard the threat uttered by Drummond on leaving the house, and only one had noted him lay his hand on his sword. Not one of them could swear that it was Drummond who came to the door and desired to speak with the deceased. But the general impression on the minds of them all was to that effect, and one of the women swore that she heard the voice distinctly at the door, and every word that voice pronounced, and at the same time heard the deceased say that it was Drummond's. On the other hand, there were some evidences on Drummond's part, which Lord Craigie, his uncle, had taken care to collect. He produced the sword which his nephew had worn that night, on which there was neither blood nor blemish, and above all, he insisted on the evidence of a number of surgeons, who declared that both the wounds which the deceased had received had been given behind. One of these was below the left arm, and a slight one, the other was quite through the body, and both evidently inflicted with the same weapon, a two-edged sword, of the same dimensions as that worn by Drummond. Upon the whole, there was a division in the court, but a majority decided it. Drummond was pronounced guilty of the murder, outlawed for not appearing, and a high reward offered for his apprehension. It was with the greatest difficulty that he escaped on board of a small trading vessel, which landed him in Holland, and from thence, flying into Germany, he entered into the service of the Emperor Charles VI. Many regretted that he was not taken, and made to suffer the penalty due for such a crime, and the melancholy incident became a pulpit theme over a great part of Scotland being held up as a proper warning to youth to beware of such haunts of vice and depravity. The nurses of all that is precipitate, immoral, and base among mankind. After the funeral of this promising and excellent young man, his father nevermore held up his head. Miss Logan, with all her art, could not get him to attend to any worldly thing, or to make any settlement whatsoever of his affairs, save making her over a present of what disposable funds he had about him. As to his estates, when they were mentioned to him, he wished them all in the bottom of the sea, and himself along with them. But whenever she mentioned the circumstance of Thomas Drummond, having been the murderer of his son. He shook his head, and once made the remark that it was all a mistake, a gross and fatal error, but that God, who had permitted such a flagrant deed, would bring it to light in his own time and way. In a few weeks he followed his son to the grave, and the notorious Robert Ringham took possession of his estates as the lawful son of the late Laird, 
born in wedlock and under his father's roof. The investiture was celebrated by prayer, singing and psalms, and religious disputation. The late guardian and adopted father and the mother of the new laird presided on the grand occasion, making a conspicuous figure in all the work of the day. And though the youth himself indulged rather more freely in the bottle than he had ever been seen to do before, it was agreed by all present that there had never been a festivity so sanctified within the great hall of Dahl Castle. Then, after due thanks returned, they parted rejoicing in spirit, which thanks, by the by, consisted wholly in telling the Almighty what he was, and informing, with very particular precision, what they were who addressed him. For Ringham's whole system of popular declamation consisted, it seems, in this, to denounce all men and women to destruction, and then hold out hopes to his adherents that they were the chosen few, included in the promises, and who could never fall away. It would appear that this pharisaical doctrine is a very delicious one, and the most grateful of all others to the worst characters. But the ways of heaven are altogether inscrutable, and soar as far above and beyond the works and the comprehensions of man as the sun. Flaming in majesty is above the tiny boy's evening rocket. It is the controller of nature alone that can bring light out of darkness and order out of confusion. Who is he that causeth the mole from his secret path of darkness to throw up the gem, the gold, and the precious ore? The same that from the mouths of babes and sucklings can extract the perfection of praise and who can make the most abject of his creatures instrumental in bringing the most hidden truths to light. End of section 7